Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, everyone. Thanks very much for coming to this um, first seminar in Term 2, 2019. We're very pleased to be launching a, a, a very nice book with the first seminar this time by David Schack. Um, uh, David has been uh, talking about aspects of this book with various of us in the, uh, in the GAI corridors for some time now, and it's been really fascinating. Uh, the topic is an amazing one because, of course, civility um, is at the root of what we, what we try to call civilization, what we call civil society, what we call being able to live together in a democracy, and David's done some really interesting investigation of this. Um, David is uh, an institution unto himself at Griffith. He's been at this university since 1976 in uh, modern Asian studies. Uh, from 76 until 2004 as a regular staff member, and then as certainly a regular fixture in his office, uh, coming in every day, shaming the rest of us, uh, and uh, and working on his research since uh, since retirement. So he's adjunct at Griffith Asia Institute still, and he's going to talk for about 40 minutes, uh, that clock's five minutes fast, by the way, on civility and its development, the experiences of China and Taiwan, uh, which was published last year with Hong Kong University Press. So, David? Thank you. Um, in my first research in Taiwan in 1969 to 70, there was a public discussion on whether it was true that Chinese are high in human feelings but lacking in public morality. So I'd spent two years in Taiwan in the early 1960s and had seen how people behaved in public. This resonated. The issue came up from an opinion piece that appeared in the supplementary pages of the Central Daily News, which was the, the official Guomindang newspaper uh, in Taiwan in 1963. The author of the piece was identified himself as Di Renhua, who was, study, who was in fact an American graduate student from Yale named Don Barron, who was studying Chinese history and philosophy at National Taiwan University. Barron entitled the piece, The Human Touch and Public Morality. He wrote that the human touch, i.e. treating others as, with consideration and generosity as befitting a warm, rent, a, a, a warm relationship, I think in, in, in Yiddish, being a real mensch, probably captures it, uh, it uh, was ubiquitous in Chinese society, but such treatment was limited to one's own social circle. Strangers, by contrast, were ignored. People gave no consideration to the effects of their actions on those outside their social circle. Moreover, according to Barron, the human touch also clashed with the rule of law in society, hindering good governments, governance and facilitating corruption. The, the op-ed sparked a movement on campuses and incited the organization of youth groups to, to promote civil behavior, but these petered out after a time. By 1969, when I first heard about it, there was little sign of any of the, that any of the campaigns had taken place. In fact, in Taiwan, there was little improvement in, in civil behavior through the 1970s and 1980s. And then in the 1990s, Taiwan changed into a society that people from all over the world, from all over, find to be very civil. The book examines the successful development of public morality, or what I call civility, in Taiwan, and so and the so far much less successful attempts to develop it in the People's Republic of China. My purpose in this comparison is not to make Taiwan look good and the PRC look bad, 
but by comparing the two societies that in terms of civil behavior and the and uncivil behavior and the kind of thinking and values that are behind such behavior gain some insights into what is required for a society to become civil and remain civil. That's all my, another purpose I had was to try to operationalize civility so that it can be something that can be investigated systematically in societies. Now, according to the original op-ed uh, and the student movements that came out of it, um, the, the, these are some of the, of the manifestations of civility or incivility in society. In, by the way, civility is much easier to investigate and to find in its absence. In other words, when we notice we notice incivility much more than we notice civil behavior. Um, and so you can just take a, take a look at these uh, as to as to as to what was what was regarded. So some of the things had to do with students. Some of the things had to do with simply behavior behavior in society. Uh, and as I say, Taiwan in the 1960s and 70s and much of the 80s was really a, a quite an uncivil an uncivil place. <coughs> By civility, I'm talking about essentially what is consideration of other people, invoking the Confucian golden rule, don't do, un don't do to others what you do not want done to yourself. Very importantly, it includes behavior towards strangers, not simply people in one's own social circle, but everybody. So everyone is equally a human being. Not necessarily equal in status or equal in other things, but they're equally human beings and they're equally uh, deserving of being treated with a modicum of, of, of decency. <clears throat> uh, it, I also include in this uh, treatment of the public space and the facilities in it as an aspect of civil behavior. In modern societies, as citizens, we are all stakeholders in the public space. And so mistreating anyone, and mistreating it is, in a sense, encroaching on our property, on, on our property rights, taking away some of our rights. Also, the Chinese word for public, as we know it today, that, that there is a public out there, we're members of a public. This is a really new, uh, new, new meaning in Chinese society. The words gong or gong gong uh, in Chinese, which, as, which we translate now as public, this meaning of public did not come in until the, be the beginning of the 20th century when they were introduced by Liang Qichao, a very famous revolutionary who got it from Japan. The Japanese had translated a number of these terms into Chinese characters as they began to modernize in the, late, in the latter half of the 19th century. <clears throat> Our civility, as we know it today, emerges in the high Middle Ages in Europe. Uh, I've mentioned, I mentioned there are a couple of books that were, writ that were written on it, particularly Norbert Elias's The Civilizing Process. Uh, and it begins when, as, as Europe comes out of feudalism, you get some of the kingdoms become larger and larger and so on. And so when the, the, the minor feudal lords wanted to behave, or wanted to be able to attend court, they, civil behavior was demanded of them, and uh, 
Elias goes into some of the kinds of things that they did. Their, their table, so-called table manners, notions of personal hygiene, the way they they opt, they, they they treated other people, uh, other people, and the way they treated women, were what we would regard as highly uncivil, uncivil kinds of behavior. And from the courts, it then it it, it this kind of behavior. It, it devolved down to the lesser nobles, from there to the rising bourgeoisie, and from there down to society, society in general. I next look at in, the, in, the, in this chapter about uh, how various, various people, uh, social, uh, social and political philosophers, political scientists, and so on, have discussed uh, uh, civility in, in more modern times. And then I look at the notions that whether or not civility was something which had developed in Chinese society. One of the stereotypes of Chinese society was that how, how polite Chinese were. And we go back to very early times when there was the so-called the, the Li Ji, the Book of Rights, uh, de describing how people should treat one another. But these were not manners, they were rules. And the, they're talking not about relationships between equals or between fellow human beings, but in a hierarchical sense. The way that, that, that subordinates should treat superiors and the sort of the noblesse oblige behavior that, that the, the superiors owed back to the, uh, to, 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 the, to the others. And finally, the chapter looks at how at, at various descriptions of Chinese society from the late 19th into the 20th century in terms of, of civil behavior, in terms of notions of a public, in terms of, uh, of the way others should be treated. <clears throat> now, as this is a sort of a controlled experiment, I'm looking at two societies which, as I say, they share a history up until 19, 1895, when uh, Taiwan became a, J a Japanese colony for 50 years. It then resumed being under Chinese control in 1945 when the Kuomintang government from China came in and occupied it and, and took over its administration and ruled it uh, uh, thereafter. Um, so they share a history, they share a, a, a cultural heritage and so on, and they shared very much the notions of how uh, how they regarded other people. Um, both, uh, both Taiwan, the, uh, under the Republic of China or the ROC, experienced uh, and and the P the PRC experienced top-down efforts at making their citizens more civil. In, uh, the, in in China in the 1930s, the government instituted what they called the New Life Movement. And in 1966, in Taiwan, it instituted the Cultural Renaissance, which was meant to combat the Cultural Revolution in China. And this was, these were efforts at getting the, uh, the allegiance of the overseas Chinese that Taiwan is saying, or the government in Taiwan is saying, we are preserving true Chinese culture. You know, you should, you should align yourself with us. Uh, and then there were a number of other, in the times I've been in Taiwan, a number of other minor campaigns uh, against, 
against littering, against tra uh, people breaking traffic rules, and so on. But these were, you know, short flashes in the pan, which would then very quickly uh, peter out. In in China, from the very beginning of the People's Republic, you had the notion of the new socialist man, socialist morality, and this was then in a sense codified in the campaign of learning from Lei Feng. Lei Feng was a larger-than-life character uh, that was uh, written about in the 1960s who was supposed to be utterly selfless. And his life was basically on implementing what the party wanted him to implement. He described himself uh, as a, as a rust-proof screw. Uh, you know, screwed in, holding the, shape, the thing together, something with no mind of its own, only to hold things together. Uh, in the reform period, we get what's, uh, the, the, what's called the five stresses, the four beauties, and the three fervent loves. And then we get the Be Civilized campaign. Uh, and these, the, the, the Be Civilized manifested itself in various ways. Uh, bringing in new customs and new ways of behavior and so on. It was part of the campaign that the, that the uh, government uh, uh, pushed at the, as China was, China was preparing for the Olympics so that the Chinese public would look good in the eyes of foreign visitors uh, during this period. Um, and finally, with the notion of bringing in suture, human quality, quality human beings, uh, and the incoming social credit scheme, which some of you may have read about, also includes a lot of aspects of civil behavior. And we could even go back to the Ming and Qing dynasties, who had the notion of the, of the, the uh, community contract program, uh, where the, the masses were supposed to be taught how to behave properly by people with, with degrees uh, twice a month at, at, at uh, meetings in the villages and so on. Uh, the word I translate as civility from Taiwan is Xin, public morality. Uh, the, the PRC uses the term wenming, which be, can be translated as civil, civilizing, civil, civilization, and so on. Uh, and this raises the question of whether they mean the same sorts of thing. Uh, Mao, of course, had very different notions of how people should behave to uh, the way Chinese thought before Mao and really since Mao. And so to, to look at this, I analyzed four sets of school books, uh, two from Taiwan, two from, uh, two from China, one from, one from before 1980, well, the 1970s and 1980s, and one set that was, that was used in both places in, in 2011. And they, they virtually have the same, the same notion of what civility is and what it should be. Uh, I found no differences in them. And finally, the question is, civility is something derived from the West. So am I imposing a Western notion on a, a, a non-Western society? Well, in a sense, I am. But since both government, the governments in both places have adopted this for themselves, the, the notion of civility that I'm looking at in this book really comes from the, the, the Chinese governments in Taiwan and in, in, and in China. <clears throat> Uh, I look at, at, at then at, at the two different societies and the civil behavior in these two societies, and these are the sorts of things I looked at in the people's, in the People's Republic. Uh, 
domestic and foreign tourists, road behavior, the notion of disturbing others, uh, being loud, allowing children to behave any way they want to, uh, the treatment of strangers, the ser people serving and helping others or, or not doing so, queuing, littering, spitting, ignoring rules and laws, philanthropy, including blood donations, uh, behavior of the rich and the powerful. I look at some cause celebre. Those of you who know Chinese will know. Uh, uh, my father is, 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 is Li Yang. Uh, my father is Li Gang, uh, which uh, was a, a cause celebrity a number of years ago. But there have been a number of cases involving uh, especially the children of high officials uh, that have utterly outraged society. And I also look at some famous uh, corruption cases. One, a man who is called uh, uh, Brother Watch and Uncle House, uh, two officials who accumulated on pittance of salaries, who accumulated millions and millions of dollars in real estate in their various places, or in wristwatches, in, in expensive European wristwatches. Uh, and they were they were taken down. But again, these become very symbolic uh, in, in in China itself. Um, I'm looking also at, at, at attitudes toward the rich. I have a I have a book uh, at home called Chou Fu, which means hatred of the rich. Uh, and this was just brought up in something I read a couple of days ago. Again, the notion that this is, this is still alive and well there. <clears throat> Following chapter, I look at I look at civility in Taiwan. I d wrote a paper. I published a paper in 2009 on, on how Taiwan had developed civility. So a lot of what I'd seen, you know, it, it, what I look what I'm looking at has already been accomplished there. There is still some littering, but people queue. They obey non-smoking signs. There's a high level of philanthropy. They give up seats on public transport. There's a lot of volunteer uh, volunteerism. There are a lot of NGOs. You see the adverts on on the subway and so on. Uh, if, you know, if you if you're depressed, if you are having uh, domestic violence problems, things like this, you know, call this number. This this organization is there to help you. So there are a lot of these sorts of things uh, in Taiwan. The civil the civil society of Taiwan is very very strong. <clears throat> uh, I look look at how others see Taiwan. Uh, including peop uh, people, uh, uh, tourists from the People's Republic, a lot of tourists, a lot of tourists go there, uh, and they're very, they're, they're very impressed. There, there are, there are anec there's anecdotal evidence. There also are studies, fairly systematic studies, looking at people who have gone there as students or visiting scholars. So they've been there for three or four months. They've you know, been able to immerse themselves in normal Taiwan society, not just the, the tourist things of uh, banquets and tourist places and, and shops to buy things. Uh, so, and, and again, they're not so impressed with Taiwan's infrastructure because a lot of places in China now are much more modern, but they are very impressed with how people, how people behave toward one another. Uh, and how, how, they say, how sincere it is. It's not something they're putting on for the Chinese tourists. It's just the normal way of doing things. Um, and I also look at uh, the, uh, the, the notion of, of, of how Taiwan made this transition from incivility to civility. In 1950, Taiwan was made up of four different ethnic groups. The Aborigines, 
the Holo and Hokkien and Hakka speaking Taiwanese and the mainlanders. And all of these were divided amongst themselves uh, into where they lived, into tribes, or from the people from the mainland, where they came from in China. Uh, I had a friend whose father was a carpenter from Wenzhou, very famous place for woodworking in China. Uh, he came to Taiwan before 1950. In the early 1970s, he still did not speak one word of Mandarin. He, his work involved being with other people from Wenzhou. He never had to use Mandarin at all. He never learned it. His wife did, although very, very heavily accented, but he didn't learn it. So you had these communities of people from China who, in a sense, basically stuck with themselves uh, for as much as, as much as they could. Uh, <clears throat> And so how did, it, how did it make this transition from a society in itself, an objective society, to a subjective society where people feel themselves to be a part of Taiwan society? Uh, and it took place over a number, a number of years, over, uh, back, uh, over, first of all, the modernization of Taiwan. As Taiwan develops economically, people leave their villages to go places for work, uh, to go for school, or for the, for the men to go into the military. Uh, as the factories start up in Taiwan, you have uh, young women who leave home and they go to work in a factory. They work there for six months and then they go to another factory because they want to see a different part of Taiwan. So you see a lot of this you know, going around the island. Meeting people, interacting with people they would not otherwise have known. People who would have been strangers. And <clears throat> so they see more of Taiwan. They see, they have a bigger picture of where they live and of the society in which, in which they live. <clears throat> uh, there were also a number of political events that took place. Uh, uh, as as uh, 1970, Jiang Jingwo becomes premier. This is the son of Chiang Kai-shek. And he begins to bring more Taiwanese into higher levels of government and, and the party. Uh, in 1975, Chiang, uh, Chiang Kai-shek died. And in the same year, a group of people who were Taiwanese, who were members of the legislative yuan or supporters of them, uh, decide that, well, we can't form another party because it's against the law under, mar under the martial law. So they simply call themselves Wai, which means outside the party. So they were, they were an, a Clayton's party, if you will. Uh, and uh, they began to push the envelope. They were able to criticize the government in the in, in interpolation sessions uh, in, the in the legislative UN. They started magazines, which, again, political magazines, which pushed the envelope. And these would go along for maybe five or six months, and then it would be shut down. A couple of months later, a new magazine starts up, different title, different color scheme, but the, the, the format of the cover is exactly the same. So it just, it just goes through this over and over again. And the, the last one of these was one called Meili Dao magazine. Meili Dao is... Uh, means the same thing as Ilha Formosa, beautiful island. Uh, and uh, this again represented. And this group wanted to have a demonstration in Kaohsiung in 1979. It was a large demonstration. It was to take place on Human Rights Day. And 
people, they say that they were agents provocateurs. There, anyway, violence broke out, and this gave the government the excuse to, to arrest about 40 of the leaders. And there were trials of the, the following year, and uh, people, they were, people were sentenced to prison terms and so on. Um, some of the people in the security forces thought the best thing to do was simply to take them out in an airplane across the Pacific and drop them in the ocean. But there was a lot of foreign pressure that, 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 that stopped that. Uh, you could say in 1980 that the Kuomintang was in a very strong position in Taiwan, and the Kuomintang was very much a mainlander government governing, in a sense, for mainlander goals. Uh, and the Taiwanese kept pushing back at this. But the 1980s saw some setbacks for the government. Um, there was a, a man named Henry Liu who wrote a book called The Unofficial Biography of Jiang Jingguo, which Jiang Jingguo did not like. And he was uh, from Taiwan, but he had migrated to the United States, and he was an American citizen, and he was gunned down in his driveway in Daly City, California. And the American government was none too pleased about that. And the FBI was able to trace the killing to the Bamboo Union game, which was the main mainlander game, uh, triad in Taiwan, and to a very high official in the, uh, in the, in the security forces. Uh, another fellow, Chen Wencheng, was a, a visiting ac an academic at Carnegie Mellon University. He went, to ta he went back to Taiwan to see his relatives. He was taken in for questioning by the garrison command. The next morning, his body was found at the National Taiwan University campus, and they said he fell, fell out of a four-story window. Um, there were the killings of uh, one of the men who was arrested, uh, the, one of the opposition leaders who was arrested uh, on the February 28th, which is a very, very symbolic day in Taiwan. His mother and two daughters were, were murdered inside their house, even though their house was under 24-hour surveillance uh, by, by the government. Um, there was a, 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 a scandal of a financial uh, organization which uh, had been trading while insolvent. A number of people got, a lot of people lost money in it, and some government officials uh, were caught up in it, um, and some of them had to resign. And through this period, Ch uh, Jiang Jingguo's health is deteriorating, uh, and so he's unable to be as attentive to government as he might otherwise be. There were also some social movements. There was the, the uh, uh, native, nativist literature. It was a socialist, realist literature written by Taiwanese about conditions in Taiwan, about how hard things were, and so on, which uh, the government and the mainlanders did not like at all. Um, there were the self-help movements in the 1980s in which local, uh, local villages, local, local neighborhoods protested against factories that had moved into their, their, their areas and were polluting. And the government, the police, would do nothing about it. And so they finally took action and forced a lot of these, these to stop. And of course, one of them happens in one place, and then people see the demonstration effect, and it starts happening all over. And there were hundreds of these. Uh, uh, during this period. And this also sparked off a national, uh, some national environmental movements, one of which 
uh, was able to stop the DuPont Corporation from bringing in a titanium dioxide plant in Lugan, a town in central Taiwan, because it was regarded to be polluting. There was a a hospital built uh, through public subscription. This was the idea of a a Buddhist philanthropic organization. Uh, And the the nun, the founding nun, wanted to build a hospital in in the place where she lived, which was on the eastern side of Taiwan, not very well served, very, the, the communication were very difficult. The roads were not very good. And the idea sort of caught on, and uh, the government and uh, many people in the government actually went down to visit her, and some of them assisted her in being able to get, to get land uh, that was controlled by the military to build this hospital. And then people in Taiwan began to donate, and they donated the 20 million U.S. dollars, which was quite a sum at that time in Taiwan, uh, to build this hospital. National Taiwan University Hospital uh, advised them in how to build it, uh, and and they helped in staffing it initially, and so on. Uh, And so you begin to see things which note that, that Taiwanese people are seeing themselves as part of a broader society. They're not simply contributing to their own family groups or their own their, uh, their, their own social networks they're contributing throughout they're becoming they're seeing themselves as Taiwanese uh, in 1986 the uh, outside the party group decides we're going to, to we're, we're going to uh, establish a party come what may and they they, they set up eight levels of ten leaders each. And so when they registered it, if the first group of leaders got arrested, the second group of leaders would come in, and then the third level would come in, and so on. As it turned out, Jiang Jingwu decided that they had to let this happen. They had to let them form the party, because it would be too disruptive to Taiwan if they didn't. Also, martial law was lifted um, uh, in that year, which began to free a number of things up. And then Jiang Jingwu died in 1988. Um, and I was there at the time. There was a month of mourning during which all we heard on the radio, uh, instead of pop music, were funeral dirges. And the newspapers had black bunting around them and so on. And the day that, that this period was lifted, one of the, op- the, the one of the newspapers in Taiwan came out with a headline: "Will Jiang Jingwu's other two sons now be able to recognize who their father was?" Uh, and these were two sons he had by another woman, uh, both of whom were quite prominent in government, by the way. Uh, but any, when I saw this, I thought it's all over. You know, the, the democracy has basically come to Taiwan uh, when you see that. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, I should have shown this slide before. Uh, anyway, when Chiang Jingguo died, uh, his vice president, Li Denghui, who was a Taiwanese, became president. And initially, a lot of the old conservatives in the Guomindang said, okay, he can become president, but he can't become head of the party, which has been the tradition. Uh, but that was fought against by some others in the Guomindang, and he be, he was able to become head of the party. At the time, people thought that well, he's going to be you know he's been a public servant. He was an agricultural economist, uh, you know he's a good bureaucrat, an apparatchik, but he's not really 
great politically. There's a time. There's a term in Chinese, though, a, a saying, "Banju uh, to act as a pig but to eat the tiger. And this is what he did. He basically out he out politicked all of these old Kuomintang people, and within a two or three years, got rid of the old guard and really continued Taiwan on its, on its democratization. And as I say, demo civility came very early uh, at this time. Uh, it, 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 the, the difference between when I left Taiwan in 1988 and when I went back again in 1991 was absolutely palpable. It was, it was just all over. People's attitudes were different. Um, they treated people in different ways. There was so much more freedom. A lot of prescribed topics. You couldn't write about Taiwan history. You couldn't write about Taiwan customs. Anything which, which separated Taiwan from China was forbidden. I walked into a bookshop and there were about six uh, square meters of books on this shelf about all of these sorts of things. So again, uh, freedom had come. People were able to express themselves. They were able to express their their Taiwan identity. Now, in the last chapter of the book, I go into the at some of the differences between China and Taiwan. Of course, size. Taiwan is much smaller. It's much smaller in population. It's much smaller in geography. Uh, there are places in China where you go three or four kilometers to the next village. So it's you know the communication is much more difficult. Integrating is much more difficult. By this time in Taiwan, Taiwan had become so thoroughly urbanized uh, and you know, everybody knew the city uh, and there were simply no remote places in Taiwan any longer. Um, Taiwan's economic development started in the 1950s. Uh, it was market-based uh, and export-based and it was uninterrupted. They had no culture revolution, no great leap forward, no planned economy. Uh, it was able to go to go straight through. By the 1980s, the end of the 1980s, Taiwan was already regarded as a high-income uh, economy, um, and the the egalitarian nature of Taiwan. Taiwan, it still has a Gini coefficient of, of around 0.35. Uh, at that time, and in the late 1970s, it was around 0.3. Uh, so it's much more egalitarian than China is. Uh, it uh, has much greater social unity. Uh, it has uh, the governance is based on elections, and this is to me one of the things. One of the big differences between the Kuomintang and, and the and the and the Communist Party, both were organized, by the way, by the same person from comment from the Comintern, a man named Nikolai Borodin in the 1920s, but in the, in the ideology of Sun Yat-sen, they included democratization. After a period of tutelage, democratization. And so Taiwan began having elections from 1950. Um, there have been a few experiments with local village elections in, in China. They have not been terribly successful in terms of, of going any further or, or instituting democracy. Um, Taiwan's uh, nationalism is based on it being a democratic society and a civil society. It's a civic nationalism. It's not a primordial uh, ethnic kind of nationalism. 
there are high levels of trust in Taiwan. Uh, trust is one of the things that people in China keep talking about as is absent in the in the public sphere. Um, and so you have these kinds of differences uh, between them. Uh, I look at a number of factors that I'd written about earlier as would, that factors that would inhibit or facilitate civility. Society being a police state with domestic informers, again, which dis deteriorates any kind of trust that is available. People feeling threatened, uh, people, uh, people having ethnic groups or religious groups that are regarded as outside, beyond the pale, undeserving of civil treatment, or society and government seen as unjust, unfair, uh, and so on. Uh, democracy, while not a necessary condition, may be important. Those that facilitate society, people showing concern for general, uh, for contentment of life, governments not oppressive, culture of obedience to road rules, uh, to uh, being courteous to others, uh, and so on. People no longer willing to sacrifice the natural or built environment for, for economic growth, uh, the inclusion of public places that people like to visit uh, and enjoy themselves, uh, public education campaign against littering and so on, and a kind of a no broken windows policy where damage gets repaired. It's not allowed to, to be there to encourage further damage and so on. I've got one more slide. It's there. I finally look at civility and values. Uh, and this is based on, uh, on the work of Ronald Inglehart uh, and Christian Belsa. And Ronald Inglehart has been uh, one of the founders of the looking at values in society and so on. And they, they distinguish between two sets of values. Industrial values come with industrial society. And um, industrial values are, are those which encourage uh, uh, conformity, looking for increments of income and so on, and wanting to, it, 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 this being a very important uh, driving factor. Um, they're rational, they're secular as opposed to ecclesiastical. They're bureaucratic, there's collective discipline, group conformity, and state authority. And as I say, one of the main uh, goals is to become, uh, is to become, uh, to become better off. As societies enter the post-industrial stage, i.e. with a, a stage where there is a considerable level of high-level services provided by well-educated workers in the economy, self-expression values prevail. And these, are, uh, these place a high valuation on self-fulfillment. Um, they, uh, uh, they value high levels of personal autonomy, a desire for enhanced uh, individual freedom. And based on the findings of the World Values Survey, uh, wanting to fulfill themselves, people then respect the, other, the rights of others to do so. So if I want to fulfill myself by doing something, uh, choosing a particular uh, gender identity, a certain religion, whatever, 
I have to allow other people to do that themselves. And so there's much more tolerance, the idea that people can do their own, their, their own thing. Um, and this is, this is respected. Uh, now, Engelhardt and Velzel were writing about democracy. But the conditions for sustainable democracy are the same as they are for civility. And so it strikes me that this is a, a valid uh, way to look at when societies become civil. Um, in their world value surveys, you start to get this transition when, they don't say this themselves, but if you look at, their, at the work that they do, when you get about a third of the people having these self-fulfillment post-industrial values in society, democracy, and therefore civility, become sustainable, <coughs> attainable and sustainable. <clears throat> and a, um, a final question is on democracy, democracy and civility. Is democracy necessary for civility? Logically, it's not, but I can't imagine a society that is authoritarian in which civility would prevail. Thank you. Okay, we've got plenty of time for questions. Just one request, please be civil when you ask. <laughs> uh, if you just catch my eye, I'll put you on the queue. Yeah. I'm actually, I mean, uh, you know, the relationship between um, democracy and civility, if you talk about high levels of, you know, upper levels of civility, one might um, be able to accept it, you know, democracy is sort of a prerequisite. But I would dispute the fact that you can have civility developing in an authoritarian society. If you look at India, by your operational sort of uh, variables that you use to define civility, queuing up, speaking, and all that, I've been to India, the capital of Delhi, I see feces, you know, on the floor, I mean, on the ground, on the streets. You hardly see that in Beijing, right? <laughs> okay. And queuing. Lots of people queue in China now. And I was really surprised when I was in, in Guangzhou recently. You know, the zebra crossing, when there are no lights in China, most probably they'll run you down. Okay? <laughs> but in Guangzhou, they actually stop for you to cross the zebra crossing. Why? Because of enforcement and the mighty fines and, and so on. So I think it's a lot to do with civility, a lot to do with modernization, you know, and uh, much more. You know, when you talk about very high level, and how do you define it? I think of civility as a spectrum, as a scale, rather than yes or no. Oh. You know what I mean? So, uh, uh, so I'm not so convinced that you say that you know in Taiwan is because of just like democracy played a, you know, I think it played a role, but I'm not sure how big a role it actually played compared to modernization, and also comments the fact that Taiwan is a relatively small country. So it's much more easy when you have a marketization for people to interact. Whereas China, as we know, you know, the twenty percent of the world's population is much more different. And I think it depends where you look at it in China, you you could see patterns of civility very much you know, very, very different. Some places, you know, are, are much less, some places much more. So so I'm just wondering how whether you know the 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 the, the, the the civility and, and uh, democracy is more, is it more of a correlation than a causality? Well, I, I, look, I, I agree with you. And, and I first went to China in 1983, and I was in Guangzhou. And 
you would not have seen anything like you described in Guangzhou in 1983, believe me. But, uh, yeah, China is becoming much more civil than, than, than it was before. And I mean, I've had, I've had some incredibly civil experiences myself in China. And in the book, I mention a, a lot of examples of people acting very civilly. Also find other sorts of things. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and, and if you look at Engelhart and Velsel, again, part of this is economics. It's getting up to a position where you don't worry so much about material things anymore. You worry about, well, how do I want to live my life? How do I want to, you know, to, to, uh, to fulfill myself? And then you let other people do it. So I agree with you. A lot of it has to do with modernization. Um, uh, and, and, and again, as I say, I, I, it ha this happened in Taiwan. It happened at the same time as democratization. But it also happened at the time when you're starting to get, when you have people who have a very strong identity as Taiwanese. Uh, the Taiwanese population has, they've defeated the Kuomintang government. They've de defeated the dictatorship. And um, in a sense, they, they could see themselves as master of their society. And I'd have to say that uh, with, with mainlanders, too, uh, there have been, been some work on, on do mainlanders feel that they're Taiwanese? A lot of them do. Not necessarily I'm Taiwanese because this is my home and my ancestral home. I still see China as important in my life. But in terms of the society I want to live in, this is where I want to live, not in China. Um, yeah. That's yourself. Dave, we were talking, I, I couldn't help thinking of this campaign that's running in China at the moment where people are accorded scores, uh, computer-based scores. For social credit, the social credit. Social yep. credit, yep. yeah. Uh, do you see that as part of this attempt to civilize no. or to control? No, no. Control. Uh, control. So it's not... That's, that's the number one word in Xi Jinping's vocabulary is control. Stability, control, yes. No, this is, and this is about, it's about rewarding people who, 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 who do what the government wants them to do uh, and punishing those who don't. And one of the ways they punish you is if you don't, if, if you have a bad score, you can't buy a ticket on highway, high, on high-speed rail. You can't buy an airplane ticket. I mean, no. Uh, so it's not civility. No, no. No. Will there be a spin-off? Well, look, I mean, one, of the, one of the things that I mentioned is that the, the, the notion of rules. Now, Chinese society was never a rule-abiding society. And I think part of the reason is because the government tried to control so much, and people just thought, bugger them. I'm going to get away with what I can get away with. Um, and. So, so you know, it's not been a rule-abiding society. Uh, yes, there've been rules against, you know, rules against against cars going through foot uh, going through the uh, the uh, uh, crosswalks uh, for years. But it's only recently. I was in Shanghai last year, and I told my friend Russ Moses, I thought I saw a car. A, Taxi actually stopped for a pedestrian. I mean, I, I was struck by it because I had never seen it before. So you know, you get to a position where people start to obey rules, and it may be because they fear punishment. It may be 
because they decide that this is a better way of doing things. I mean, Taiwan had a, a similar kind of a, of a traffic campaign in the 1990s uh, to get people to obey rules. And at first it was done with the, with the stick. But then people found that it was a much better way to, to drive, and they do it pretty naturally now. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump first and then uh, come to you, if that's all right. So uh, just a quick question. Um, when we speak in the language of civilization and civilizing, um, do you work in the book to make a distinction to say, look, I'm not talking about the white man's burden. I'm not talking about how this can be spread, yeah, how we can uh, have a, a post-colonial, neo-imperialistic neo uh, mission to uh, civilize the world. Um, how do you distinguish between those sort of really dubious civilizing missions and the civilizational process that you're talking about here? I don't really talk about that because I'm looking at the way the Chinese themselves have defined civility and how it's come from them. Now, initially, the New Life Movement, a lot of it was came out of Chiang Kai-shek and Sun Yat-sen and others thinking that you know, the, the normal common people, they behave abominably. And the New Life Movement had about a hundred rules in it of how to behave, how to dress, how to walk, how to do all kinds of things. Uh, and that's, that's where the New Life Movement came from. And it was also an attempt to instill some kind of military-style discipline in the population. You know, that was most efficient. Chiang Kai-shek was very enamored with fascism and Mussolini. Uh, but, uh, so I don't, I don't really talk about that uh, it, because I say I'm, I'm using what the Chinese themselves say is civil behavior and what they want it to be. Yeah. So, um, thank you, um, David, for a, a really uh, insightful presentation. I, I just wanted to, uh, because you've discussed a lot about the connection between civility and democracy, although there's been some discussion on that, I just want to talk about civility in the context of mature democracies. Mature right. democracy. Yeah, because you, often, you mentioned it's West and so on and so forth. Now, I want to make a distinction between civility in the aggregate and break down of civility in specific circumstances. Uh, what I have in mind are the collective conduct of English soccer fans. Do you, do you follow the case of English soccer fans? Do you follow that story? Uh, or uh, they are a sight to behold. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a student, in the 70s in the UK, I would avoid uh, soccer matches like the play because they'll descend on you like hordes, uh, they'll trash public spaces and beat up anyone they can find in front of you. And that particular breakdown of civility continues today. As you know, English soccer fans are widely <laughs> regarded um, as some of the worst ever in terms of their behavior when they go out, say they go to Paris, they'll trash the place, binge drinking, this and the other. I'm just wondering, how is it that you have a society like that of the UK, Western democracy, mature, evolved over long periods of time of social equity and etiquette and so on? Why do you get breakdown of civility in specific circumstances? And then that, that intrigues me. I'm just I can't answer that question, but I would ask, uh, do, do soccer fans all over the world behave that way? Uh, well, you're, I'm thinking <laughs> it, it, in Europe. In Europe, what about in Africa? What about in South in South America? Uh, you know, do 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 they? they do particularly notorious. They, they have improved a lot. Though. Have they? Oh, a lot, a lot. As a result, of not everyone's from Millwall anymore. You know, it's 
Right, but as a result of enforcement, a lot of policing, a lot of social, lot of social control, it did not occur spontaneously. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely not. If you left them on their own, they'd be doing exactly what they were doing 20 years ago. I mean, I, I've read that uh, basketball fans in China can be very uncivil. Right, yes. But um, yeah. soccer fans basically boo their own teams because they know that they, their teams are always taking bribes and things like that. Their, their matches are fixed. Okay. No, I'm just wondering. No, I... I Thanks, David. I was just wondering if um, you could comment on whether during your field research or just time in country, anyone spoke of feeling a sense of kind of shame or embarrassment when they broke a rule or did something deemed uncivil. And I'm wondering if that could tell us a little bit more about whether these values are deeply ingrained or are they actually just doing the right thing because um, they don't want to get a fine and they don't want to get in trouble. Well, I never had that experience, no. Um, um, I never saw anybody apologize. Uh, but until fairly until fairly recently, no one would say anything. Um, you know, if, if someone broke a rule, it was just, well, that's people, you know, some people are that way. And you don't say anything, in part because you're afraid of how they might react. Uh, in China, um, I read that there was a group in Beijing who would go around basically upbraiding people for throwing tissues on the ground or spitting or something like that. And the head of the organization said we had to stop it because he said we were threatened too often. You know, you talk, you say something to somebody and, you know, they want to fight. Uh, so you, you, don't, you don't say anything like that. Um, I mean, the government had campaigns that in Tianjin there was a campaign to get people, all right, if you're on a crowded bus and somebody accidentally steps on your toes, uh, if you if you step on somebody's toes, you say, "Oh, I'm sorry." And the other patient said, "Oh, it's nothing." That's what they encouraged. But whether or not people actually took it to heart, I have no idea. Uh, but again, I think just from what I've observed, from 1983 to being in China a fair amount, from say 2008 uh, until a couple of years ago, I was in China probably every every year, every other year, something like that for for periods of time. Things have improved a lot, especially in the bigger cities. But then, when you look at you look at tourist behavior, and the, the way tourists behave, uh, a lot of these tourists are probably from rural areas. Um, but you know, that's just the way they are. Okay, we've got um, two more. If it's all right, we'll take sure. them together. So, Steve first, and then Caitlin. This project look at the how Chinese develops religion. I'm wondering if, if you uh, if we invite the experience from Hong Kong and Singapore, where Chinese also have the dominant the dominant local population, and the way they they develop civility, if we can argue, um, that could bring on more contextual variables to the study. Like in the Hong Kong experience, there are long period of colonial rule, and then. There's no democracy, but civil freedom in Hong Kong for a long time. In Singapore's uh, case, um, there are colonial <coughs> rule and then self-rule by the local population. So I think just comparing mainland China and Taiwan might not provide a panoramic view on this. 
okay. especially when you consider the, the conditions that that affect this process. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, David. Mike, I'd be interested in your thoughts. One area that I think we've seen a rise in incivility in Chinese behaviour has been in diplomacy. And we've seen, say, Chinese diplomats dis you know, actively disrupting um, mm. proceedings mm. where we have a very kind of standardised, we've got these protocols in place that everybody seems to agree to. So I mean, I'm just interested in your thoughts on that and, and you know, the motivations behind that because that doesn't strike me as a way to win favour either in, in the international arena. It may, it may achieve a short-term outcome. To take your question first, uh, two things. When we had a, a, a GOMA event a number of years ago, there some authors who came. One of them was a fairly famous author from China, and I was able to ask the last question about uh, about you know the way they, the way the authorities act and how that they're you know they're they're not making friends that way. And he said, no, he said, he said, the government is very good at making enemies. They're not very good at making friends. I think a lot of this, you go back to 2008. This is when, uh, okay, we've got the Olympics, and then you get the, the financial crisis in 2009. Hey, the West is finished. We're on our way. We, you know, nothing's going to stop us. Now, I think that, that, that the behavior of the diplomats, I think a lot of it reflects that notion that, you know, we're, we're top of the walk now. As for Hong Kong, um, British rule, uh, and other things, and I think perhaps education. A lot of the schools in Hong Kong, Christian schools, uh, and so on, where people learn things. Uh, I remember in, in, in Taiwan one time, I was at a bus stop uh, talking to, uh, and a fellow was with me, a fellow named Chao Jian, who taught at Chinese University. We were talking about 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 uh, Hong Kong, and he said, "Well, he said, at least the British taught the Chinese to queue." So I think it's part of that. I mean, but now, I think it's it's absolutely part of Hong Kong culture, and I think that you're seeing this. We are not Chinese the way those people on the other side of the border are. You're seeing that in the demonstrations now. Uh, they're a different. They're they're they're, they're a, they see themselves as a different culture. Uh, and I think you know this is, this is just, now it's very much part of, of, of Hong Kong culture. It's part of Taiwan culture now. Singapore, I don't know. I've had communication with uh, Fraser Howey, who's, who lives in Singapore, and he doesn't think that the Singaporeans are very civil at all. <laughs> they may be on the street, but he said in terms of the way you know they act toward other people, uh, condescension and things like that. He said that he doesn't think they're very civil. Okay, Steve, last question? Okay, last two. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve first. Um, you mentioned briefly elections. And I was wondering, because uh, you're referring to democracy leads to civility, does actually holding an election, does that create civility itself? And I guess you, with the outlier of Hong Kong, that wouldn't have happened until the English pulled out. But uh, Singapore uh, controlled elections, those sorts of things, but in Taiwan, more freedom in the election itself. So. Okay, and then uh, last question. Well, um, just based on my own experience in China, and from what the Chinese tell me, they seem to be far more civil and willing to be more civil to Western European tourists or associates than they are to each other. 
I'm just wondering what might explain that. And they seem to wear it as a badge of honour, and I'm just wondering whether it sort of shows they are capable of it, but they just... Oh, I think part of the, the, re the reason they do it partly is face, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, I was teaching there in 2009, and I went out one 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 day. I was I was looking for a place, uh, uh, and somebody. I'd, I asked someone on the street where it was, and he he he, he said, "Well, it's this way." And so I started walking that way, and I realized that was wrong, and so I turned back. And this fellow actually realized that he'd given me the wrong, wrong information, and he came after me to tell me, and he apologized for giving me the wrong directions and so on. We got to the right place. So I asked my students the next week, I said, look, is this because I'm a foreigner? And they said, no. They said, We've ha I've, had, you know, some, I've had this kind of experience myself. I've had this kind of experience myself. So I don't think, again, this is Beijing. These are young people. Um, it may be quite different in other places. I'm not sure. Um, now, Steve's question about about the elections. The elections in Taiwan initially were village level elections. They were basically popularity contests because village village chiefs or township chiefs didn't have they have very little budget uh, enough to kind of spread around so that it was important to stay on their good side, but not to really do very much. I think the important thing with elections is that you eventually get elections at higher and higher levels. And so you get elected people from Taiwan in the legislative yuan who can begin to interpolate the government, who can begin to criticize the government, and who can build a political movement on that. And so that's where I think the elections are important in, in Taiwan, is because it, it made democratization, in a sense, possible. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I don't have a question, but David, I know you've been working on this project for a very long time, and I think it's great that you've got it to this stage. I think you've got a brilliant publisher for this particular project. I just want to congratulate you that you brought it to this stage. <laughs> 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 <laughs>